Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, lawmakers have announced new laws that will impose harsh restrictions on the internet. But can the Kremlin actually implement their hugely expensive plans to isolate Russia online? The idea is to have an option which would give the Russian government a capability to uh, cut off the internet. We'll be joined by investigative journalist Andrei Soldatov to talk about the state of internet freedom in Russia. And later, by now you've probably seen the footage of 50 polar bears pillaging a village in northern Russia. But you might not know why they ended up there, terrorizing residents and rubbaging through dumps. So yes, uh, climate change is one of the main reasons of of, of such a situation. We'll be speaking with Vladimir Chorpov of Greenpeace about what happened, and perhaps more importantly, why. And stick around because we'll have a special guest who has a unique view on the historically bad relationship right now between Russia and the U.S. I think what we've seen is that the relationship between U.S. and Russia is, if anything, cyclical. Eventually, it's going to improve and then get worse again. First up, on Tuesday, Russian lawmakers in the State Duma voted overwhelmingly in favor of a bill that would give the authorities the power to shut down the Internet. The move follows Russia's highly controversial ban of the Telegram messaging app last year. And critics say all the signs point to Russia's efforts to adopt a harsher China-style control over the internet. Joining us on the line to talk about the new legislation and what comes next is investigative journalist and author of The Red Web, Andrei Soldatov. Andrei, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. First of all, can you just explain to us in layman's terms, what exactly are lawmakers proposing? Uh, The Russian Duma uh, is proposing to uh, have all internet service providers in the country uh, to install uh, special equipment, uh, kind of uh, black boxes, uh, which would be capable of uh, doing two things. One is uh, permanent and uh, should be switched on all the time. So the first one is to be able to monitor all the traffic and to filter the traffic. So actually to conduct censorship. And before this legislation, uh, it was up to uh, the Russian internet service providers to conduct uh, censorship. So now this function uh, would be performed by these government-installed boxes. And this should be, as I said, switched on all the time. The second option is much more aggressive, in a way, because the idea is to have an option uh, which would give uh, the Russian government a capability to uh, cut off uh, the Internet in time of, say, any kind of crisis in the country, so to cut off the country from the outside world, or in particular region. So you have some unrest in some particular region, and uh, you feel that, uh, say, this unrest might be provoked or encouraged by some forces from abroad or from other regions. Or maybe you think that this unrest might spread to other regions. And you can effectively cut off this region from, from, from the rest of the country. 
That's basically the idea. This legislation isn't coming out of the blue, is it? Can you give us a sense of what the Russian authorities' attitude towards the internet is and what their goals are? So the Russian government got really scared in 2011-2012 when they saw that uh, in the country uh, where you have all, say, traditional means of mobilizing people, you go out of streets, like trade unions or opposition parties, long under control, and we, we live in this country, right? So we do not have independent trade unions, uh, and we do not have powerful opposition parties. And when you have the lack of these options, surprisingly, in 2012, 2011, we got lots of people, nonetheless, on the streets, thanks to the mobilizing capability of the internet, primarily thanks to Facebook and Twitter. So these technical means provided a capability for protesters to, to govern, to go to streets and to protest against the government. And that's exactly what frightened the Russian government, and that's exactly what they wanted uh, to do with, uh, with the Internet, to strip it of uh, this capability. I just want to stress it's not like in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, the idea was to completely seal the country. So they tried to control literally every message, every um, piece of paper, every book, and the goal was to stop dissemination of information. These days, living in Moscow or in the Russian region, you still have an option to, for instance, uh, read some very sensitive stuff about, for instance, uh, the Russian military presence in Ukraine. Uh, it's still possible, uh, but because the Russian government mostly concerned with uh, the capability of the internet to get people to the streets. And that's exactly the goal of this new legislation. We want to, to be able to stop these things uh, at the very early stage. Civil society groups have openly criticized the proposed legislation. Is there any chance that the authorities will hear them out? Uh, to be honest, I'm a bit pessimistic. And uh, my pessimism is uh, mostly based not only on the passivity of the Russian users. And it's a known fact that, yes, we have some protests, but they're not really big. The other problem is that, uh, and it's a very sad story, until now we have a uh, thriving IT industry in this country. And it was really sad to see that uh, two Russian biggest internet companies, Yandex and Mail.ru, uh, well, actually expressed their support for this legislation. How do you see this playing out? Can the authorities actually implement this new legislation? Uh, I think it's, um, it's really difficult to say right now uh, because uh, they do not have this technical capacity right now. And, and the legislation openly states that we need to um, spend some time uh, developing this kind of technology. And uh, they could have some problems. And, uh, and for instance, they were not really successful uh, over the last six years, uh, uh, say, at filtering uh, and even surveillance. Uh, but the problem here is that uh, they could do some damage on the way to achieve this goal. And um, it means that, for instance, we already have some damage, uh, enormous damage on the Russian internet industry. Just imagine what's going on right now. So we have six years and a half of uh, this um, incessant bombardment with repressive legislation. And uh, many of the small-level, mid-level companies, I mean, internet companies, they are thinking now that maybe it's, uh, it's a good time to leave because of uncertainty, because we do not understand the rules, 
the only thing they could be certain of is that uh, it's not the last legislation about the internet, so they can expect something new coming out maybe in, I don't know, five months, six months, who knows? And uh, it's, uh, it's a very risky uh, area, actually, right now to make any money. So maybe the good thing is just to leave altogether. And uh, we already see signs that in many regions, small and mid-level companies, they just uh, live in uh, the Internet market. And these businessmen, they try to do something else. The problem is that uh, this void is filled by big companies. And in a way, we have renationalization of the Russian telecommunication industry. Because when you have small and mid-level companies living, you have big shots like Rostelecom, Megaphone, Wimpelcom, uh, Transtelecom uh, taking their place. And these companies are, well, just by definition, just because they are so big, they have much better understanding uh, with the government, and uh, they are getting more and more cooperative with the government. And uh, it's um, it's a very sad story. Uh, so this to answer your question, that they, they, these guys could face some technical problems, but they know how to play the game in terms of uh, intimidation and uh, coercion. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us, Andre. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, John. Yeah, bye. Dramatic footage emerged from northern Russia last weekend, showing dozens of polar bears marauding through the town of Novaya <laughs> Arhangelsk authorities announced a state of emergency in the town of 3000 and children had to be escorted to and from schools. Here to tell us more is Vladimir Churpov, the head of Greenpeace's energy unit. Hi, this is Jonathan at the Moscow Times. Okay. What's the update from Novaya Zemlya? Are the bears still there? Are more coming? Uh, according to information we have, uh, the uh, people who try to uh, take situation down under control they uh, successfully scare away the beers uh, penetrated into the settlements in the Nova Zemlya. Uh, so there is no new news about beers uh, in, uh, in uh, Belushia, Guba settlement in the Nova Zemlya island. So the situation is under control at the moment. The beers are scared away. What's your assessment of why this happened? Is climate change responsible? Uh, for sure, there is a climate change as a, one of the main factors uh, to the situation of poor uh, bear penetrating and appearance in the uh, in the settlements of people in Russian Arctic, uh, it's well known that the ice is crucially important for polar bear survival as soon as uh, polar bear hunting from the ice. In situation with the uh, climate change and ice melting in Arctic, uh, the polar bear they lose their environment, uh, which means they try to seek food uh, in alternative ways. Uh, and uh, the shortest way is to find the near settlement and find food at the waste dump, uh, traditionally uh, showing the presence of humankind in the Arctic. So yes, uh, climate change is one of the main reasons of, of, of such a situation. A local official told state-run media that the town had been chasing away bears with whatever tools that they had. That sounds like a short-term solution. Does the Russian government have a long-term solution to solving issues like this one? Uh, the long-term sol- solution would be uh, the mitigation of uh, climate change, meaning uh, greenhouse gas emission cut via uh, turning Russian economy and energy to uh, low-carbon technologies. That's what Russian government doesn't do. Uh, in short term, yes, uh, the uh, 
the the, the best solution is to scare away the uh, the, the beers from the settlement. But it means uh, that the government have to do it uh, every time the beers penetrate in the settlement. So uh, we uh, appeal and we demand from the government. Uh, uh, the strategic approach to avoid the catastrophic scenario of climate change when uh, the polar bear, for example, could lose the environment uh, at all. But is the Russian government actually interested in, in tackling climate change? We know, for instance, that Russia could stand to gain quite a lot uh, monetarily from shorter winters that would ease shipping routes in the Arctic. That's just one example. There is the opinion that climate change will bring more profit for Russian economy, like the shorter term for in winter period, when Russia has to heat the buildings. But in comparison with the uh, negative consequences, like the heat waves, when the people uh, have to switch on the, the conditions to cool down the buildings, or permafrost melting in uh, where 100,000 of uh, kilometers of gas and oil pipelines located and losing their stability. Uh, in, in general, in some uh, Russian economy and Russian energy will lose uh, from climate change. Nevertheless, uh, a Russian government does almost nothing uh, to tackle climate change as soon as uh, the economy is very dependent on oil and gas income. Uh, up to 40% of federal budget, for example, is uh, based from uh, oil and gas exports, for example, uh, which means there are huge, uh, strong lobbyist groups from oil and gas industry which do not give Russian government to be more proactive and have more ambitious targets uh, to tackle climate change, unfortunately. Vladimir, thank you very much for giving us your, your views on the issue. Thank you. And to finish off, Julia Yoffe is an American-born Russian journalist who spent years reporting from Moscow for The New Yorker and foreign policy. She's now based in the US for GQ magazine. Since Donald Trump was elected president, she's made numerous TV appearances in the US explaining some of the nuances of Russia to American audiences. Uh, Julia, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us in the studio today. Thanks for having me. Um, You've spent years reporting in Russia and more recently in the US. As someone who knows both sides and who's seen both sides, what's what's your take on the tone of the dialogue in US media about Russia at the moment? You know, I think it's it depends which day you ask me. Honestly, I think a lot of the, uh, let's call it concern, is merited because we still haven't gotten to the bottom of what happened in the 2016 election, both in the sense of what the Kremlin did in order to meddle uh, and what the Trump camp did to kind of help them along and to what extent was it rowing in the same direction, which was my hypothesis early on, and to what extent was it, you know, active collaboration and conspiracy, Mm -hmm. which is what it increasingly seems to have been. On the other hand, it's hard when the country's at 11 all the time. Yeah. And it does kind of, it's it's corrected a little bit over time. And we've finally gotten to a point where we're also talking about why Trump was elected and how it wasn't just, you know, uh, active collaboration with WikiLeaks and whoever and, you know, Prigozhin's trolls, but also uh, a racist backlash to the first black president and um, active and latent misogyny, the role of Fox News, all these things that we're now finally talking about. That said, the, you know, Russia continues to be toxic and radioactive, and it's um, it's hard to tell how much of that is merited, how much of it isn't. There's still a lot of kind of panic and emotion around the issue, but increasingly as stuff dribbles out from the Mueller investigation, I think we're seeing a lot of that concern was merited. Do you recognize the Russia that you see illustrated in some of the 
U.S. reporting? Some of it, yes. Some of it, no. Uh, especially at the beginning, I wasn't sure which country they were talking about. You know, it was. It also happened to be named Russia, but what <laughs> what they described was not Russia. And I remember coming here in 2017 and talking to a local military analyst who was close to the de- defense ministry here, and he said, "You know, you Americans write about us like we're Germans, but we're not Germans. We're not the heirs of Martin Luther. We're the heirs of Byzantium." Mm. And I thought that was a very concise way of uh, encapsulating what I thought was wrong with the coverage of Russia, that it was, um, you know, because a lot of the people driving the coverage, a lot of the report, amazing, incredible reporters who have been, you know, showered with prizes, rightly so, they were, they're not Russia experts. They're people who are sourced up in the intelligence agencies and the law enforcement agencies Mm -hmm. and Congress and the intelligence community. And they understand those worlds. And those worlds are highly organized and highly hierarchical and nothing happens there without orders. And, you know, you see the same tendency in Russia, too, but you saw them kind of extrapolating and projecting onto Russia that same kind of order and hierarchy and command control and, you know, attention to detail and things being implemented according to plan and going off without a hitch. These things that, you know, if you spent any time in Russia, you realize are um, kind of blue moon occurrences. Right. The dominant story in in the U.S. at the moment is, like you said, it's, it's collusion, it's the Mueller probe, it's election meddling. And yet these are stories which, if you're based in Russia, you rarely see reported on or talked about. It's, yeah. It, it really feels like it's a, it's a U.S.-centric story, despite the fact Russia's apparently at the center of it. Why, why do you think that is? You know, I think that's an excellent question. It's one I spend a lot of time pondering and talking about with fellow current foreign reporters here in Moscow and, f- and former Moscow reporters who are now in the U.S. You know, why is Russia kind of a black hole for reporting on this? Why is all the reporting coming out of the U.S. and maybe a little bit out of Ukraine hmm. uh, from the great Andrew Kramer of the New York Times? I think, you know, this ship doesn't leak in Moscow. And there are probably 10, 15 people who know what happened. And they have no incentive whatsoever to talk to journalists, especially American journalists. And, you know, and this is something I was blown blown away by when I moved back from Moscow to Washington and started reporting there was that people in the government talked to you and Mm. quite uh, eagerly and openly. um, And I was just like, wait, what? Really? Are you sure you want to talk to me? I think you kind of get used to people not talking to you. As to why it's not being talked about in the local press, I think so much of what is discussed is driven by the Kremlin and Kremlin-owned or Kremlin-affiliated news organizations here, and they obviously have no incentive to talk about it. Also, how do you talk about it if you're Russia? You know, um, there was a you know a couple moments when Kisilov, for example, kind of almost took credit. You know, I think that was with the Salisbury poisonings. Mm. Like they really want to take credit for it because it's cool that they elected an, an American president, but they can't because they're going to get in even more trouble. Right. So how do you talk about it? And I also think there's a lot of skepticism for the reasons we talked about uh, here. That you know, I think a lot of Russians don't believe Russia was capable of. Doing doing something right. like that. It's a kind of in- internalized what the Kremlin calls uh, Russophobia, right? Like, yeah, we're huge and powerful, but come on, really, we're not that powerful. We can't elect an American president, and we all know they're more powerful, right? So I think there's a kind of skepticism, and it's one that I honestly find kind of confusing, especially among the kind of opposition or independent media and opposition circles here. You know, these are people who 
believe that Vladimir Putin can do horrible things, the most horrible things, which he has done. But somehow this seems to be beyond his capacities, you know, and when actually presented with evidence of something bad he has done or his people have done, it's like, well, no, that can't be true. He might eat babies for breakfast, but he certainly couldn't have <laughs> done something, you know, like this. You've, you, you moved back to the States uh, six years ago, was it? Yeah. On, on your trips back to Russia, what, what, have, you, what have you noticed uh, has changed since you've, since you've been away? What are the biggest changes that, that you've seen? Well, one thing that hasn't changed in the, is the stark difference between Moscow and the rest of Russia. You know, it's, it's two different countries. And that's just a function of money and where the money is, and it's not in the rest of Russia. What has changed is Moscow, I mean, massively. Uh, I know everybody hates the sidewalks here and the plitka, but I think it looks kind of great. And the center of Moscow looks really wonderful now. There's a lot less traffic, I think, because of the paid parking, just a lot less traffic. Right. Like, I would never take cars anywhere when I lived here. And now I'm, to quote this rap song, obscure rap song, Uber everywhere. <laughs> and no, there was no Uber. There was no Yandex taxi. Right. It, uh, it, there was a lot of, you know, flagging down Chaisniki on the side of the road and uh, haggling with... Uh, people who didn't know the the road also the like the weird the the crazy lights that yeah <laughs> that, like that are, i mean everywhere everywhere in the center that uh look really gaudy and you just look at that and you just think about all the money that could have been spent on you know kindergartens and hospitals and schools also but kind of larger than that uh, one thing i'll add it's just become a nicer place to live i think the lot the food has gotten much better. Mm. It's become a, a lot cheaper, at least for somebody with foreign currency coming here, because yeah. I lived here and it was still kind of the boom times. It was 30 rubles to the dollar. It was very expensive to live here. Now it's much more affordable for me. Um, and it's just become a more pleasant place to live, more normal place to live. But the flip side to that is the kind of the exuberance is gone. And mm. a friend of mine who uh, has spent many years here, who's Italian, said, you know, the champagne is gone. There's no more champagne in the air. Mm. Uh, it's not the crazy place it was when I lived here and when people, you know, the kind of the old expat crew lived here. Uh, it just seems a lot more normal and also a lot more stagnant. It just feels more like the politics feel more stagnant. Right. The economy feels stagnant, especially. And in Moscow, it just feels just like a gilded stagnation. Uh, it, you really feel it. It sounds like you're talking about optimism. Not just optimism, because there wasn't, until the events of December 2011, there really wasn't any optimism here when I lived here. It was a lot of like, you know, ho-hum there. There was a lot of outrage. There was a lot of, you know, uh, Alia Kashin was beaten when I lived here. Um, Sergei Magnitsky was killed when I lived here. Uh, Alexei Navalny started doing his exposés when I lived here. So there was a lot of outrage and a lot of kind of paying attention to what all the malfeasance in the government uh, and there was but it was also kind of looking back it was kind of a golden age there were all these new publications opening mm. doors opened uh, became a big thing like all these um, I mean it was like mushrooms after the rain everybody was starting a media project it was a much more vibrant discourse a much more vibrant media space Moscow Times was much bigger it wasn't an optimism it was just more activity more uh it was just more stuff happening. It just felt more vibrant and more 
and more crazy honestly it just hmm. felt more there was more absurdity more craziness more you know you could now i feel like america is like that where you could you can wake up and you have no idea what's going to happen that day and right. and that doesn't happen as much here i've noticed the relationship between the us and and russia at the moment is historically bad do you have a sense that that that, that could change do you have a sense that there there's room for improvement could well, there... there's all there's always room for Im- improvement when you're at rock bottom. But you know, as the Russian saying goes, right. we we hit, thought we'd hit rock bottom, and then someone knocked from down below. I think there's obviously room for improvement. And I think it will change. I think what we've seen is that the relationship between U.S. and Russia is, if anything, cyclical or not cyclical, but you know, like a sine curve, and it it waxes and wanes. I think eventually it's going to improve and then get worse again. It's just how the relationship has been structured historically. What do you think needs to happen for for that change to to occur? I think it probably won't improve until Putin's gone, honestly. So it might be a few more years. Exactly how many? We're not sure. (laughs) Well, it depends how long he lives. (laughs) No, really. I mean, he's not... It's impossible to predict anything in Russia, right? But I, I find it highly unlikely that he leaves the Kremlin voluntarily and alive. If you were a foreign correspondent based here, what would what would you be reporting on that you're not seeing foreign correspondents here working on? Are there are there gaps in coverage that you yes. see from the states? Yes, yes. What are uh, those gaps? I think we all see them, and it's uh, you know again the former Russia correspondents. It's the gap in cover, covering the Trump stuff. Uh, it's just not we're not seeing it coming out of Moscow, and it's it's weird to see features about the Seven Sisters, but not more digging into why you know the the Trump Tower project that uh, Trump and his campaign were or. Trump's team was negotiating with the Russians pretty much all through the presidential campaign, which is insane. You know, that the emerging frontrunner for the presidency of the United States was negotiating negotiating a business deal behind the scenes with a historical American adversary. And I mean, the relationship with Russia was already horrible at that point. Recall it was after 2014. So, you know, why is there no stuff about that? You see Russian reporters doing incredible stuff on this stuff. You have Daniel Turovsky at Meduza. You have The Bell uh, breaking stuff all the time. BBC has done great stuff on Prigozhin. The Russian service. Yeah, Yeah. RBK has done great stuff on Prigozhin, but not not really seeing the uh, American and British reporters doing much of that. They seem to be pretty tired of the story. They think their compatriots back home have got, kind of gone insane and are unnecessarily fixated on the story, which maybe we are, but we're their audience. And uh, there is a huge hunger and appetite for that in the States. And um, it's weird to not see it coming out of Russia when there are some excellent American and British and other foreign reporters here. But are we not seeing it pre- precisely because, as you mentioned early, earlier, the Kremlin doesn't leak? Maybe, but there is, I think, other... I, I mean, that's a huge reason, right? Um, these people have no incentive to talk to journalists, especially American journalists, and they're probably more likely to talk to a Russian reporter who has a better instinctual feel for the rules kind of the unwritten rules of the game here. Uh, they might have more connections to them, more personal connections. They live here. They're not Prieje who are here for two years or three years and then are gone. But then there's other, I think there's other ways of approaching the story, um, you know, l- looking into what's being developed in the software world, what's happening with Kaspersky. You know, the business world does leak, right? So that's why that's why I mentioned not, you know, what the FSB is doing or what the GRU is doing, but the Trump Tower deal. 
you know, you can talk to all those people. I've done a, I did a story about that deal from the States. You know, the people in real estate do talk and you just, you know, you have to kind of make calls, pound the pavement, etc. To wrap up, do you want to tell us why you're coming back to Russia? Sure. Um, I'm actually being a huge hypocrite and not writing about the, you know, the <laughs> Trump stuff. Uh, I'm writing a book right now. And uh, it is a, in part, a family memoir about the women in my family and through them to tell the story of women in Russia and the Soviet Union in the last hundred years. Because when I tell American friends or colleagues that, you know, yes, my mom is a doctor, but also her mom was a doctor and her mom was a doctor. You know, I have two great grandmothers who were doctors and another who was a PhD in chemistry. And my other grandmother was a chemical engineer. Americans are generally like, oh, wow, that's incredible. You know, my grandmother didn't even graduate high school or maybe she graduated high school, but then she got married and stayed at home and didn't work. And they think that I have this these super women in my family and they're like you got to write about them they're incredible and what I find myself doing is kind of trying to explain how ordinary they were mm. in a sense for this context and how it was that this country created really amazing for all the horrible things that the Soviet Union did this was a crazy and wonderful but also difficult social experiment that it ran and you know it was the vanguard of world feminism and created this experiment where Women were doctors in the 1920s when they weren't not doing that in the liberal West. I also figured that there'd been enough Putin biographies written, and I wanted to show Russia from a different angle and explain Russia from a different angle that would explain Putin, would explain the current context, but from a different um, strana. Good luck, and uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with us in the studio today. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other listeners find us. I'm Jonathan Bryan. Our producer today was Piotr Syra, and thank you to CM Record Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. (laughs) 